0: chapter 2, verse 1. John was about 96 or so years old. He was the last surviving apostle when he found himself exiled to an island 32 miles off the coast of Ephesus, a place called Patmos by Domitian, the, the emperor of the day, a wicked man who wanted to see this church destroyed. And the end of John's life, in, in many ways, or the last few years of his life, were difficult. And, and yet God used them to bring to John this vision of Jesus, the end, the finish, the future of all that God had planned to do with man. And so this, this last book, without it, boy, a lot of unanswered questions in the Bible. But with it, we get the, 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 the period at the end of the sentence. So John was given a vision of Jesus in his glory. We looked at it in chapter 1. He was directed in verse 11 to write to the churches the things that Jesus was going to say to them that he wanted John to convey. In fact, in verse 20, John says that these seven churches were a place where he would walk in their midst amongst the golden candlesticks, as he called the church, the, the light holders, And in his hands were the seven stars, those leaders that God had chosen. In verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord gives to John the outline for the book. Write the things that you've seen. That was what happened before verse 19. Write the things that are, which we're going to look at in chapters 2 and 3, the church age. And then write those things which shall be hereafter, which will begin in chapter 4 with the rapture of the church. The seven letters to the churches from Jesus that we're going to start tonight and we're going to do for the next seven weeks are really Jesus's only direct words to the church on the earth. So here's his word for word to the church. We, the body of Christ. He's the head of the church. He obviously speaks with authority. He has total insight. You wonder when you read these letters how, difficult, the tr- how, how diff- uh, difficult, different the church might look if we were all given to listening to what the Lord had to say about what he would like to see amongst his people. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to look closely at Jesus' will for the church described by him in the first person. His concerns, his advice, <clears throat> his ex- expectations, his desires for us, the things that he is pleased with and the things that he hates. In many ways, these letters kind of build one upon the other, but because of that number seven, we went over it a couple of weeks ago, seven in the Bible when it's used in a numerological numerological sense spells completeness. This is God's complete heart for the church. This is what he wants you and I and every generation of God's people to know. And if you take them together, This is what God would want us to consider. The things he applauds, the things he doesn't like, the things he wants changed, the things he wants strengthened. The directions are all sent to the pastors of the churches so that they might deliver to the people God's word. But since the church is people, it certainly is written to every one of us individually, and we should take it that way. When you take the list together, and we'll try to point it out as we go, from the first church Ephesus until the last one later to see it, there is a portrait given of the church throughout history from a prophetic standpoint. This this is the, really the representation of the early church, maybe the first 300 years or so, before Constantine came to power, and we'll take a look at that in a week or two. But, but when we take them together, there is this there is this prophetic overlay of the church age like I said, to the last church, Laodicea, which is kind of the 21st church that's kind of lukewarm. and You know, they're either on fire or they're they're cold as ice. Each of the letters that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at the first seven verses tonight, um, follow the same format. So uh, you are in the letter given a destination, a church. You are given a description of Jesus that we found in chapter 1. But the description that Jesus takes when it's used, is usually something that relates to the message that he wants to give to the church. There is a, um, a commendation, a blessing, a, a an applause from the Lord for for most of the churches. There is a rebuke for some, or an exhortation as well. <clears throat> All of the letters end with a uh, with a warning and with a promise. And each of the churches have a specific theme. The book of, or the letter to the Ephesians speaks about motivation. What drives your relationship with God and your service to him? Smyrna Church speaks about satanic opposition. It's a church under tremendous suffering. Pergamus is a church that finds itself religiously compromised. Thyatira uh, is a church that ab- adopts more uh, immoral kind of lifestyles and kind of allows that to continue in their midst. The Church of Sardis is very apathetic towards spiritual things at all. Uh, Laodicea, I'm sorry, uh, Philadelphia... Talks about lost opportunities. They're they're certainly a a well-blessed church. And then the Laodicean church, you you find at the end they're being just very materialistic in its outlook. And they they use spiritual things for, for temporal gain, if that makes any sense. For those of you that want to get into it more than we're going to get into it tonight, a few years ago I wrote a book on these two chapters. We have it in the bookstore. You're welcome to go get it. Let me just remind you, all of the books I write, we get no profit from them. all. The minute I write them, I signed all of the royalties to the church, and it belongs to them, not to me. So if I'm hawking a book, it's not to make a dollar, okay? This ain't no TV preacher. So tonight, the Church of Ephesus. Let's turn there in verse 1. To the church or to the angel of the church of Ephesus. At right. So here's the here's the destination. Remember that we told you, I think, last week in verse 20, that the, the term uh, angel, angelos in, in Greek, is usually translated messenger. It is found that way in the Gospels, and it is here a reference to the church leadership. The, the pastor was to hear from the Lord. He was responsible for passing God's word along to the congregation. So, to the church pastor in Ephesus, write these things. Ephesus was a huge harbor city. If you do any work at all in going back to look at first-century cities that the the Lord mentions in the New Testament, this was one of the chief marketplaces of Asia. It was there's probably two or three hundred thousand people that lived in the city. It was a very corrupt place. It was tremendously idolatrous, uh, very immoral. It was the center of the worship of the goddess Diana. In Greek, she is called Artemis. Same. Idol, if you will, she was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, she was a goddess of fertility, so the worship of Diana involved a lot of sexual immorality with temple prostitutes in the center of town. and so you can imagine how that might have appealed to the world one One of the comments by the chief clerk at the at the trouble when Paul was there that he had caused me through the preaching. He stood up to quiet the crowd over the riot that had been caused by Paul turning so many people away from idolatry. And, and and he stood up and he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian, uh, the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Same chapter, Demetrius, a silversmith who made a lot of money making these silver shrines to this goddess got the union together, the craftsmen together. He said, you know, not just here in Ephesus, but all around Asia, this guy Paul has turned people away and persuaded many that these are not gods who have been made with hands. So our trade is, is suffering and falling into disrepute because the great goddess Diana's temple is being held in, in, or, or being despised and her magnificence is being destroyed whom all of Asia and all of the world worship. worship. So that's, that was the, 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 the setting, if you will, into which this church was built or, or was born. Um, Paul in preaching the gospel brought their idolatry to such shame that you read in Acts chapter 19 that there were just tons of folks who, as they came to Christ, brought all of their magic books and their idolatrous books and they had large bonfires in the, in the center square. Paul was so disruptive, the gospel so influential, that, that riots followed, that, that that the world just didn't know how to respond. So Paul started this church, he and Aquila and Priscilla and later Apollos. When Paul returned uh, to Ephesus a year after his second trip of going through there and seeing a need, he stayed almost three years. He had planted the church, planted overseers. Would eventually, at forty years old, Timothy would be sent back to be its pastor. John the apostle that's writing this would die as a pastor there at Ephesus. He would be followed to the throne, uh, or to the throne, to the pastorate, not to the throne, by a fellow named Polycarp. If you read any church history, you might know the name. But he was a fellow that was a disciple of John's. So Paul had written the Ephesian letter, and you have that in your Bibles. 35 years earlier than this letter, from a Roman prison cell. Jesus now addresses the same church nearly four decades later. So to the church angel, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write these things. So that's the destination. The description of Jesus is, uh, these things says he who holds the seven stars, the leaders in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of those seven golden candlesticks. He is walking in the midst of the fellowship of the light bearers because the church doesn't, isn't the light, but they can bear witness to the light. And he holds the pastors in his hands. So here's the Lord with authority speaking to the church and to its leaders. But let's start with a commendation, the, the things that the Lord approves of. Verse two. I know your works and your labor, your patience and that you can't bear those who are evil that you have tested those who are uh, who say they are apostles and they are not, and you have found them liars, and you have uh, persevered and have been patient and have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. The commendation or the applause from Jesus for each of the fellowships is early on. This one's pretty long. I think it's one thing to hear the opinion of others about your church, you don't like it when people are critical. You're you're happy when people are, you know, positive. But I think it is an entirely different opinion that is, is, is received when the Lord says to you, here's what I think about your church. This is the opinion that you want to be sure is right. What makes these letters so valuable? This is what Jesus has to say. What do you think Jesus would say to you and I if you got a personal letter from him about your life in the Bible? What would you think would, would, would go on your list of, of commendations, the thing the Lord would, would, would be honored with? I think about that oftentimes, pray about that, that what we're doing is pleasing the Lord, try to, you know, pray a lot before making decisions. Would, would this please the Lord? Well, he had a lot to be pleased with in this church, big church, tough place. Verse two, I know your works. If you ever think that you can hide from God, think again. Jesus begins in in many of these letters by saying, I know all about you. I know what you're doing. He will say in in more than one place, I know why you're doing it, which is even more frightening to me. Some works will not be rewarded because they come from wrong motives. Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do a charitable deed, don't blow your trumpet. (laughs) Like the hypocrites do, so be seen of men. You have your reward. He went on and he said, if you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who like to stand in the synagogues or on the corners of the street. Just go into your prayer closet. Pray in secret so that your Father can reward you openly. So there's things that we do for the Lord, or we say they are, that if we are honest with ourselves and the Lord can't be fooled, we do them for other reasons. I know your works. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there will be a bema seat. We were in Corinth a few years ago at the bima seat, the place of judgment. But it is used in the Bible to say that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and our works are going to be thrown into the fire. If they make it through, you'll get a reward. But if not, your reward will go away, but you'll still be saved. So there is this judgment for the, the character or the motives that drive our work. Paul said to the Hebrews in chapter 4, you really can't hide yourself from God. We're open and naked before him with whom we have to do. So here's a church, the first church, the first that the Lord addresses, the Ephesian church, who had done a lot of things. There were constant outreaches. There were lots of meetings. I suspect that their announcements on Sunday for things that they were doing was long, lengthy. I know your labor. I know your works, and now I know your labor. And both in verse 2 and in verse 3, the word labor is the word for for physically working to the point of exhaustion. You've worn yourself out, literally. The the Ephesians were not just showing up for church service. The the Ephesians were giving it their all. They were sacrificing their their own time. There was much involvement. This was an active, busy, committed fellowship. So far, so good. He said, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience. The word patience is the word for being steadfast. It means to press on through the difficulties of life without giving up. There's no place where you stop. You just, you're going to put your head down and see it through. The, The Ephesians were not easily turned from their purposes They were described by Jesus as a church that endured, and man, it was a tough place to endure. They came to church when it was raining. (laughs) They came to church when the Super Bowl was on. They came to church when the time changed. They came to church when there were parking problems. They just came to church. They were diligent, steadfast, committed to coming no matter what Face them otherwise. The Lord said, I, I see, I know your patience. I know that you can't bear those that were evil. The Lord commends this church on their intolerance of those who wanted to live ungodly lives within the, the assembly. I, I know that you don't put up with that in your fellowship. You, don't, you have a standard to keep. You don't just cover sin up. You, you try to walk uprightly. There's no you know, measure of tolerance, winking at lifestyle sins, excusing behavior. They didn't want any of that. They were a church seeking to be pure and it pleased the Lord. It's his commendation. The Ephesians wanted to live holy lives, separated from the world. They were consistent. They were serious. And the Lord applauds them for it openly. I know you can't bear with those that are evil. You you just don't. The word "bear" means to live with or to settle down with. What a what a great letter so far! I would be reading this loud and clear so far. You have tested those that say they're apostles, and have, and they're not. And you found them out to be liars. The Lord not only commended their diligence, if you will, their their intolerance of evil. He also blessed and and acknowledged their discernment, especially in dealing with these itinerant preachers of the first century who were traveling around a lot and and claiming as they went into town, the Lord has sent me. Now, if you just put me up for house and board, I'll I'll bring you God's word. They they began to use the the, the church as, you know, they came self-proclaimed kind of prophets. There, There were a lot of them. There is a first century book out called the Didache, you might be able to find it still, which were written by the early church to say, here's the way you test whether this is a true prophet or not. And it starts with, if they want you to put up with them and feed them and house them, they're probably not true prophets, because they didn't come there, but the first thing they talk about is getting their own needs met. Um, If you read uh, 3 John, the the little book there that John wrote, there's a a whole section in that little book about the difficulties of having to deal with these false traveling preachers. So here's a church that was not easily fooled. They weren't easily used by people. They, they they were right where God wanted them to be. they weren't harsh, but they weren't foolish either. and so they found themselves with spiritual wisdom and and they were able to just get it right. And the Lord says, I, I, I'm, I, I see that you're you're careful not to just be taken.' and to apply these things to your oversight, your your, um, discernment. He says in verse 3 that they had borne the responsibility of being a church in a very difficult place. Well, they had persevered with patience. They had gone through the difficulties, the opposition, the criticism, without quitting. I love guys like this, don't you? I mean, here's somebody that you can count on. When things get tough, they're going to be there. When, When difficulty faced them, they weren't going to buckle up They, were, they or buckle under. You, you've suffered for my name, say, we read at the end of verse 3, and you haven't gotten tired or weary. They gave it all to Jesus. They, uh, they, they loved him enough or, or they, they, they committed themselves enough to the work to see that as a sufficient motive to not quit or faint. I, I read these things and I thought to myself, how many churches would measure up to this kind of standard? how amazing the stamina, their history, 40 years almost. To anyone looking at it from the outside, this would appear to be a model church. You know, be like the Ephesian church. And yet, as you continue reading, and because there is a verse four, and the word begins with the word nevertheless. If we were to just go by what we saw, we would come to the wrong conclusion. But God sees more than what meets the eye. And when he looks tonight at our church, at your heart, he looks beyond the announcements and beyond the calendar of the church to find out what is the driving force in your heart. And what he says is kind of shocking. It's almost eye-opening. You want to just go, really? Because I read verse 2 and verse 3, and I think to myself, gosh, What could be better than that? Well, verse four, we read, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Though the church was busier than ever, driven, focused, tireless, consistent, God had a problem with this large church. And the problem was, He saw a heart that was motivated without proper emotion. What they were doing was wonderful. Why they were doing it was not. Their love and their devotion to Jesus, which had started the church, was no longer driving their behavior. What happens to you as a church or as God's people when your love for the Lord no longer motivates your behavior? and yet you're still going to church. Then what motivates you? Peer pressure? Habit? Guilt? Routine, maybe? Self-righteousness? The church can grind on for years without a heart for Jesus. It looks good on the outside. People taking notes, when those guys are busy. But it isn't man's blessing that you want. You want God's approval. When Jesus no longer drives you or is the main motive why you're here for worship, where you get up to serve, why you would make a sacrifice or get involved. All you do may be applauded by men, but will not be acceptable with God. It's a personal thing. God wants to be the reason. And so notice what the Lord says here in verse four. I have this against you. One of the things that the Lord has against the church negated all of their credit. And the only thing he had against them was their motive was impure. It didn't line up. 35 years earlier, Paul wrote to the church and he said, May Christ dwell in your hearts by faith. May you be grounded and and rooted in his love. That you would know the love of Christ that passes all understanding, that you be, it might be filled with that love as you go to serve the Lord. And, and they were. But now it is four generations, or, or four almost decades later. In fact, Paul in Ephesian, the Ephesian letters mentions the love of God in their hearts 20 different times in six chapters. It was the motivating factor of the church. They were known for their love, but now things had changed. Look, everybody goes through changes of motive as we grow. You get married, things can change. You have to work at love, right? You have to it, commitment takes take a it takes choice. You might feel that for a while and then you don't, and then you have to work at feeling it, or you have to work at acting upon it. Same thing with the Lord. You get saved, you're crazy. You can't miss a church service, you're at everything that moves. And then you get to be a professional. You, know, you don't have to go to money things at all. Okay, I've heard that and I know that. I got stuff here. I can spell prayer. you know, and That's you. You have to stay focused on why you're doing what you're doing. Well, here the newness had worn off. And for some, their service to the Lord that once was driven by love is no longer driven by, I want to do this for Jesus. It was just driven by a hundred other things. And it's a sad day when, when your relationship with God becomes a job. Oh, I should go to church. Oh, I should pray. Oh, I should get my Bible out. Rather than, I can't wait to get it out. I can't wait to get into church. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said of of his preaching, it is the love of Christ that compels me. I can't do anything else. He's just got my heart, touched my life. It, it, it could be the hardest worker, the most tireless servant, the most strong in faith under persecution, and yet if it isn't, if it isn't driven by the love of God, it's going to leave you empty and God unimpressed. And that's really His message to the to the church of the Ephesians. What about your motive? I've seen it a lot. Maybe you have two people that once were thrilled to serve the Lord, and then they get weary. It's almost like they put in their time and they go, well, I put in my time, you, I hope you're grateful. And then they want, you know, recognition, applause, whatever. I've heard people say, well, you never thank me. To which I usually replies, I didn't know you were doing it for me. Thanks. If you're doing it for Jesus, why am I flanking you? Do it for the Lord. Serve him, bless him, make him happy. But so often you can watch folks that they kind of spin out, you know. I've seen leadership people who, who they fall in love with the Lord. They, they, you can't stop them. And then one day somehow the love has, has been left behind. It's kind of like the honeymoon deal. When, when Jeremiah wrote in chapter 2 and the Lord was speaking to the children of Israel, the Lord said to the children of Israel who were walking away, I, I remember you in the kindness of your youth. I remember you when the love of our betrothal was strong. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land that wasn't sown, then Israel was holiness to the Lord. The fruit, fru- first fruits of his increase and all that devoured him would offend. Disaster will now come upon you. You've left that behind. We've got to be careful of that. You that have been Christians for a long time, it's easy to just put it on autopilot. And the relationship with God that once drove you drives you No longer. You know, remember what it was like when you were dating? You couldn't wait to see each other crying. I just had to call you one more time. Good night. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. And then what happens? God wants his bride back. It is important to see that look, only Jesus could write this letter. We couldn't say this to each other because we don't know the hearts of the people. He alone can look beyond the long hours and the the tireless effort and the constant busyness and and the recognition of others to show a lack of love. You know, it it would be kind of like, you know, if if you're a wife and you're bringing your husband dinner and you throw it at him from the kitchen door, 10 feet away, and you say, he's still getting fed. (laughs) You're right he is. Not quite the way he had in mind. The food's still getting there. Well, we as a church can get so busy in a way that is unacceptable to the Lord because God looks at our motive, not at our labors, because he can do without us. He chooses to want to work through us, but it is only an acceptable work when we are doing it out of love for him. So the Ephesians were, were rich in works and they were poor in love. <clears throat> That's not something that we wanted to be at all. I know sometimes I, I hear from people that they'll say, hey, nice to see you. He goes, well, I have to come. I'm an usher. Or I'm a board member. Or I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah, you should be here if you're the pastor. In reality, if the love of Jesus doesn't drive you it really doesn't impress God. You remember Martha and Mary and Martha being in the kitchen serving and, and cooking and, and Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha standing at the kitchen door yelling at Jesus there in Luke chapter 10, hey, tell her to come in here and help me. You know, flour on her face, rolling pin in her hand, sacrificing, sacrificing. And Jesus said this to her, she said, Mary has chosen the better part and that won't be taken from her. She sat just in love listening to Jesus. So, look, if we are busy serving the Lord without a heart for him, know that from God's standpoint, that's unacceptable. It, it, it is a disturbing thought that we can you know, be busy for the Lord with have no relationship with him and literally waste our time. That doesn't doesn't lead to to fruit that will last. So, with that being said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. And I I point out to you, you don't lose your love, you leave it. I know I've I've been in marriage counseling, people said, Oh, we've just fallen out of love. No, you've chosen not to be in love. It's a choice. You leave or you you head towards it. Here the Lord says you've left it. Well, then what do I do? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand, your church, your, your light influence from its place unless you repent. So the Lord comes and he gives to them three words to help them turn it around to get back to where they believe where they should be and these are the words remember repent three R lords return or repeat remember repent or repeat remember what remember from where you have fallen here's jesus's counsel to a church if that's you that have walked away from your love or you don't have that motivation you once had He says this to you. Remember from where you fall and start by looking back to see how things used to be. Take a trip down memory lane to your spiritual well being. Look over your life. When did you lose or no? When did you leave your love? It's a choice, not a consequence. It's a choice. You don't fall out of love with God, you abandon it. Jesus said, remember how it used to be. When did you love him? When did you stop loving him in terms of that being the reason why you're doing what you're doing? Are you here tonight because you love him? Did you worship tonight because you want to worship him? I mean, those are questions I can't answer for you. Just the word remember should tell us it is easy to forget why we're doing what we're doing, and yet God is interested far more in the why than in the what. When I got saved in 1973, yes, I was a child in those days. Mm-hmm. Me and my friends, we lived in Belfour, drove to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, to listen to Pastor Jack four nights a week. 50 miles round trip. We <laughs> were in high school and then in college. We'd sit in the front row and take notes. Sunday night services started at 7:30 at night. Chuck would usually go 2 hours going through the Bible. All of us were so upset when he'd stop. Come on, one more chapter. I don't know if you ever sat under Chuck's teaching in the Old Testament, but oftentimes he'd read two chapters and then here'd be his commentary. <laughs> Isn't the Lord good? Let's pray. that was it. He let the Bible just kind of stand on it. Oh, oh, it was the best. For some of us, church attendance and involvement is no longer driven by love or a hunger for the Lord like it used to be. If that's the case, remember how it used to be and start praying about getting back there. You know, one of the important reasons for these large Old Testament week-long feasts was to remind the people of God's goodness so that they could take an inventory, so that they could sit together and go, man, look what the Lord provided this year. And they could leave the feast day being reminded again of the goodness of God. Notice here that their current situation was lower than their previous one. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember. first. Second of all, Repent. The word metanoia in Greek means to turn around or head in the other direction. Literally, I know we use the word repent to just go, I'm sorry for my sins, and that's certainly a factor. But the word itself means, quit going that way, start going that way. Do an about face. Get back on track. Determine in your own heart to do nothing when it is not motivated by love. Or In other words, check your own heart very carefully. You make the decision. And if you're aware of it, God will help. But, but it, wasn't, it wasn't their activities that bothered him or their accomplishments or their perseverance or their toughness or their longevity. Their motivation bothered the Lord. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You, you, you no longer are loving me. And that's not the reason you're doing So remember, turn around. And thirdly, we read here, do your first works again. Repeat, if you will, or return. Do it right. You might remember Abraham had been in fellowship with the Lord when he decided to go to Egypt to avoid a a famine. And for a long time he stayed there where he didn't belong, but then he realized that he had gone astray and so he he came back and, and we read that as he came back from the south verse uh chapter 13 of genesis that he came back to a place uh, called bethel and actually between bethel and ai and then you read this it was the place that he had first at the first built an altar to the lord and he came back to that place and he began again to call upon the name of the Lord. He, he came into the land, he, he, he sought God, he built a place of worship. When trouble came, he ran away. When he came back, he went right back to the place that he started. Here's where I met God and began to walk with him by faith. It's a great picture there in, in Genesis, the first four verses, I think, of chapter 13. So go do your first works again. In other words, do only what you can do out of love. Not quantity, quality. Or retrace your steps to the point where your motives now please the Lord. That's what he would call on each of us to do. And that's a, that's a tough, it's a tough letter to read because there's a natural kind of entropy, you know, away from that, that devotion. Time does that. Habit does that. Familiarity does that. We just, you know, friends that you used to spend time with, you, you take for granted because, you know, who's got time? And it is easy to die inside, though you're still doing all the right things. So the Lord starts with the early church, and he shakes them, and he said, Look, I, I see everything you're doing. It's so so wonderful, so beautiful, just so unacceptable. Because what you're doing and why you're doing it are not in line. So do these things. Remember, turn around, start over, or else, or else, verse Mm 5, or else, I will come to you quickly, and your influence, your place as God's people shining light into the world is going to be set aside. In other words, you're going to not be very useful. To continue in busyness is just going to let your light go out. You're not going to be shining. Oh, you're going to be doing the right thing, but there's no power there, no No movement of God. The purpose of the church, after all, is to hold forth Jesus as the light. And you can't do that if he isn't your light. All of the activity in the world cannot produce lasting fruit. Imagine having a church meeting and Jesus doesn't show up. He's not here. Oh, we're singing to him, but he's not here. He's not involved. You can't find him anywhere. How many churches do you suppose have been closed for years and yet the light's still on? <clears throat> Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew, no, Mark chapter 7, said, you know, Isaiah was right about you, that you are hypocrites. You honor me with your mouth, your heart's far from me, in vain you worship me, you teach his doctrines, the commandments of men, you, you, outwardly y'all look good. But really, what matters to us and what should matter to us is what God thinks about what He sees from within. We can all close our eyes to pray. The Lord's walking around here looking. He sees. Verse 6 But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I love the fact that the, that the Lord, in His wonderful love for His own, you know, He, he compliments them. He gives them something to think of that's really hard to hear, verse 4 and 5. And then he immediately turns from this strong rebuke to commend them for something else. You know, all is not lost. <laughs> there, there's a lot of things to be happy about. We just need to get your heart in order. Well, for this church, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The words Nikael Laos means ruling as a god over the laity. And it is really that move of establishing a priesthood over the people. It started early on in the church. To their credit, the Ephesian church hated the spiritual hierarchy that some churches established. God hated it too. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, We are a kingdom of priests and kings in his kingdom. God hates it when we as a church would put some people closer to Him than others. Or in the case of the priests or the bishops or whatever, you know, the. the I grew up in the Catholic Church, so it was always the priest. But, but, but what, we, what, what, that, what happens with that is it, it puts additional mediators between you and God. And there is only one mediator, and His name is Jesus. You don't need to go to a third person, a sixth person, Jesus' mother, or a saint. You need to go to Jesus. He's the mediator. There's one. It's, he's the one. And so the, the Nicolaitan movement was, was where there was this hierarchy established where you, you know, you talk to a guy who knows a guy who knows the Lord. It's always that whole, it's like a mafia deal, you know. You know, I know a guy, know a guy who knows a guy who knows the Lord. I don't have his number, but I know his number. God hated it. Still does. Later on, when we get to verse 15, which I think is in a couple of weeks, when we get to the uh, Pergamos church, the Lord will say to them that he hated what they loved, because in the Pergamos church, the the doctrines of the uh, Nicolaitans had been adopted into the church life. So it, it almost became the church structure later on in the church history. So the Lord, you know, he gives us a pretty heavy rebuke. I have this against you. You've left your first love, so come back or you'll be finished. This is, you can't continue this way. But I love the fact you don't like that hierarchy, and, and I hate it too. He ends with this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has ears to hear. It's written in every one of the letters. It is written uh, singularly. It literally reads, if you as an individual should respond when God the Holy Spirit speaks to you. The word churches is plural. But the rest of it is singular. If you have an ear, the churches should hear. So every church written to all, but yet it applies to the individual so what we read in this church and what we read in the next church to, of Smyrna, what we read in the pergamos letter it's meant for all of us whatever the lord is saying and you know, you're know, you going to read some of these letters and you're going to go well that doesn't affect me at all good for you but there's going to be plenty here that's going to hit you in the nose you know and, and hopefully rattle our cages and make us go forward if it applies respond if it doesn't move on if he has ears to hear let him hear what the spirit is saying the church is plural here's his promise if you're an overcomer you're going to not be uh, sorry if you're an overcomer you're going to be able to eat from the tree of life found in the midst of the paradise paradise of god overcomers are not the spiritual elites in the bible rather those in the church that are truly saved john will write in first john chapter 5 whatever whoever is born of God overcomes the world this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith who is it that overcomes the world he that believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God to the overcomer to the true believer and in, in every church there is there are some or many that believe some who do not in every church but if you're an overcomer if you're one that believes in Christ you're going to have the joys of eating from a tree of life that by the way is mentioned um, in the Garden of Eden, guarded by the angels so that Adam and Eve in their sin wouldn't go eat of a tree of life and be perpetually alive in their sin and their suffering. But that tree of life will be available to you so you can live perpetually in life. By the way, that tree was later moved to a compartment in Hades. Luke chapter 16, verse 22, where we read of... um, This man being carried off, if you will, into Abraham's bosom. We see it moved again later on as Jesus dies and he opens up the gates of heaven by his blood. And we read assuredly today, he said to the people of the cross, you'll be with me in paradise where the Lord was. Now it is with him in glory, as Paul mentions in chapter 12, that he was caught up into paradise, (laughs) the place where God dwells the first letter historically prophetically ephesus represents the early church historically in a historical standpoint through about 100 a.d that means three generations of people came and went before the love of god the motivation for service had had already began to wane when we get to the next church we will read in smyrna of the church from about a hundred A.D. to 312 or so, where the church just suffered the loss of millions of people murdered for their faith before Constantine, you might know the story, came and, and spared the world and the church and made it worse. The killing stopped, the compromise began. But in any event, we'll go through those as we, as we approach them. But, but this church is really that, that church that, from a prophetic standpoint that, that lasted through the first century. And I guess the question for all these letters as we go through them is, how do we measure up against these letters? What has the Holy Spirit said to you tonight? What does and what has your ears heard from his word about leaving your first love? Here's, his, here's the formula. Repent or remember, repent and return, right? Remember, repent and return. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at morningstarcc.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash morningstarcc. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash Morningstar CC.